0: New Books Network. And as you may know, the network is run by volunteers. There are about a hundred of us, but we do have expenses. So we'd like to ask you to contribute a little something if you can. If you enjoy the programming we produce, then we hope that you will take a moment to go to any New Books Network page and hit the button that says, Donate to NBN. And whether you contribute or not, we'd like to thank you for listening to the network. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper look at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. This week's guest is Lincoln Harvey, and we are discussing his book, A Brief Theology of Sport, published by SCM Press in 2014. Lincoln is a minister in the Anglican Church serving in a parish in London. He is also a scholar and teacher of systematic theology. And as we learn at the start of the interview, he is a great fan and former player of soccer, Lincoln points out in his book that there has been much research and writing about religion and sport from the standpoint of history and sociology, but there has not been a careful theological approach to sport, to what it is as part of a world created by God, to the purpose it serves for people, and to whether it's something that the church should embrace or condemn. Lincoln tells us in the interview that the church, throughout the centuries, oscillated between these two positions. Lincoln, however, offers a wholly different approach to sport, and it's one that I think will be of interest even to those who follow and study sport and are not religious, especially those who are uneasy with the corruption of games by greed. Lincoln spoke to me from his home in London. Here's our interview. Our guest this week on New Books and Sports is Lincoln Harvey. Lincoln, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Great to be here, Bruce.
0: So we begin uh, each episode with a bit of background about the guest. I will say by way of an introduction that Lincoln is a lecturer in systematic theology at uh, St. Meletus College. He does some teaching as well at King's College in London uh... he's also a minister in the anglican church he serves as an associate priest at a parish in in fulham and i should probably point out lincoln that you're something of a fish out of water on that side of london home to both fulham and chelsea in that you are a gooner
1: well i am i am a gooner, That's right although historically i'm a fish out of water within my own family because my family from these very streets of of fulham and, and chelsea so most of my family and cousins and um, a far-reaching historical ties to Chelsea and also to Fulham. But as often happens in London. Um, for one reason or another, some of us uh, get aligned to other clubs and so whole families can be can be at odds with each other on match day, which sometimes happens with us, particularly last week when I was with my cousins when Arsenal got slashed 6-0 by Chelsea in a real horror show of a game.
0: So what then, What then? Uh, I won't ask you then how you became a, a supporter of Arsenal, but what brought you to combine your interest in, in sport, your general interest in sport, and perhaps your specific interest in Arsenal, with your study of theology?
1: Well, good question. It kind of happened in some respects by um, just reflecting on the way and the shape of my own life, in that I'd spent most of my childhood, um, all my better years, uh, playing football. Um, supporting football, running after a ball, practicing my free kicks, playing every day, inside, outside, whenever I could. And then over time, um, through by God's good grace and a bit of luck, I've ended up as a theologian. And mixing in academic circles, one of the things you realize is that when I was chasing after a football, most of my colleagues on a sort of wider level than my particular college, but most academics weren't chasing after a ball busy learning some obscure language or reading some obscure text and preparing themselves to be academics. And I found myself wondering, had I wasted my time? What was it about football that I love so much? Why, how does it fit with my life now as a theologian? And as this sort of niggling thought grew and grew, and I looked around, I discovered no one had really thought through, from the perspective of a theologian, what exactly sport is. And it's often the case, or rarely the case rather, if you find uncharted territory in an academic field, and it's a wonderful opportunity to begin to mark the train and explore it yourself. So I was able to draw my own experience and then put my head in some books and draw on my theological education and begin to think through, from a Christian perspective, what exactly sport is.
0: Let me get back to the point you were making about uh, uh, your life as a fan, as an athlete, as being somewhat separate from your life as an academic. Uh, I do know, though, at uh, St. Melita's College that that there are a number of, of fans and, and athletes on the faculty there. We've had, uh, for instance, Graham Tomlin on the podcast in the past. And so I'll ask you how your ideas about, uh, uh, about the theology of sport, how they developed in that, uh, in that environment and conversations with colleagues.
1: Well, the story goes at St Melitis that when my job was advertised and a stream of people were wanting to work, it's a great college, a great environment to work um, here in the UK, we were asked to do a presentation and when the time came to my um, interview, I stood up and said um, I wanted to share some ideas about theology of sport. And apparently, precisely at that moment, the, the job was mine. Both <laughs> so sitting in the interview panel included someone like Graham Tomlin, who's a you know, diehard football fan, and, and numerous others who had a you know, longstanding love for sports. We're quite rare, though, in this mellitus. Uh, however, we're, we're more fans rather than, I think you used the word, athletes. We're, we're not too athletic between us. Um, It probably takes a few days to run 100 metres. But there's a few good golfers. That seems to be popular. Um, But lots of football fans. So, um, yeah, it's a great environment in which I've been strongly encouraged, not just to sort of articulate how my thoughts were being shaped and to get constructive sort of feedback. Because most thoughts are generated by conversation like me as an extrovert that's really important to be able to share ideas and then get sort of feedback so the informal conversations around the water cooler as they say or, or by the the teapot that's probably more likely in england um, were really helpful particularly graham tomlin as you've mentioned and stephen blackhouse and chris tilling and sean doherty and jane williams it's a great crowd there mm-hmm. who are able to help me think
0: so, Lincoln, let's uh, open up your book, and uh, I want to start with the two premises that you set down at the beginning. And one is that sport is a universal part of human life, and the other is that religion is also a universal. So, can you talk about that, please?
1: Yeah, it's um, to, universe, to say it's a universal isn't to say that everything is a sport, obviously, but it yeah. is to, to identify the way in which not only does sport today spread across. Um, Base, you know, cover the whole globe and, and be followed in every corner of our lands, be it here in Europe or over there or in the Far East or, or wherever. It's also to recognise that it, it it spreads through time. That as far back as you go, you'll find sports. There's never a land in which there hasn't been a sport played. So in, in Africa, you'll have, say, something like Sudan, the, the Nuba tribe, which is a well documented case. Who, you know, as soon as um, records are kept, are already having these tournaments, um, wrestling tournaments, or it might be in China, you know, thousands of years back, where you find games such as um, Kuju, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, meant to be now an ancient forerunner of football, or in Mesoamerica you'll have, you'll have games such as Clashley, and again, not great with the pronunciation, or what, the Olympics, or... Um, you know, in ancient Rome, that there's always been games played, and um, that the societies have always had sports in, in operation. In, you know, in America, that's certainly the case. What's also um, evident is if you track uh, and, and examine those ancient sports, what we might now see as a distinction between religious practice and sporting practice is at best blurred. Most of the ancient sports function essentially as ways in which the community enacted or or dramatized or or lived out the most fundamental stories that gave them shape and meaning to their life. Mostly their sort of creation and myth, the way in which the world was created. Or, to take the example of of Kuju in, in, in China, the ancient forerunner of football, where the pitch was seen to be the earth, the ball was like a heavenly body, um, the players represented zodiac signs. Or in, um, in Sudan, wrestling, where the protagonists would be covered in ash to give this sort of ghostly resemblance as they entered the borderlands of life and death, and, and the games would start with them bellowing, um, thought to represent the noise of the cattle upon which the tribe depended. So all the way back in this universal of sport that always played, there's a very close connection with with sport as a community practice that is, at to and a religious event in which the gods are petitioned, addressed, um, thanksgiving is made. So that the two run very, very closely together, and that that runs through um, Greece Rome, um you know if you look at some of the ancient Roman sports, there'll be a fishing contest that would lead the sacred offerings on you know, to, to the gods, or uh, there was the whole culture of of manliness of a sort of virtue in Roman games that that led to the Colosseum and the gladiators and the way in which they would. Um, represent not only the power of Rome and its victory over nature and its conquering of all the lands and the exotic animals that were brought into the Colosseum, but also the power of Rome in face of, of death as the emperor passed judgment on the living and the dead. And the gladiator would learn or would show the Roman people how to die well. And all of these events, again, in Rome are surrounded in religious symbol and and articulating something of of how, Religion was understood as much as how much sport was played and enjoyed.
0: I want to get at, then, how the, and this is something you discuss in the book, how the early church viewed the games of of the Romans as well as the Greeks. And uh, I want to start, I want to ask you about, in particular, uh, the passages from the Apostle Paul's letters, and, and you discuss this in the book, uh, in which he refers to sport. And uh, as you point out, Paul makes a number of sports analogies, and today when we would hear a minister at the pulpit make some kind of sports analogy we we would presume that that this person knows and follows sport can we can we make the same assumption about the apostle paul uh... that he was uh... knowledgeable about sport or does he he have more of a negative view
1: of sport it's very clear that he um, was knowledgeable about sport he regularly uses illustrations from, from the sporting world he references you know, running, boxing, chariot races. Some people argue that he, you know, is referencing gladiatorial um, contests. He was certainly um, familiar with with everything that was going on in the culture around him and was prepared to draw on sporting images to make the points that he wanted to make. What St. Paul doesn't... um, he doesn't give us whether it's in you know, his, his letters to Timothy or in Corinthians or in Philippians. He doesn't give us a theology of sport. He doesn't. He, sport isn't in. Isn't the focus of the points he's making. It's serving the argument he's making. He's drawing from the sports of his day, often making the point that, in the same way as a athlete has to be disciplined and work towards. Um, maximum performance and how the whole of the athlete's life serves the race or the, the fight or whatever it is just so the christian also must like an athlete shape all of their life towards the attaining of this eternal goal and so he's, he's very obviously immersed in the culture aware of of sport but he's not interested in it as such it's not you know when he's referring to sport. It's not that therefore he's baptizing it and saying it's a great thing. He's simply using it as a literary device to make points to Christians about how our own life should be disciplined towards the end. Mm -hmm.
0: So then moving on from Paul, how did the leaders of the early church in in its first centuries respond to the games of the Romans
1: and the Greeks? With the early fathers, the situation is quite clear. Sport is, is popular. It's a a cultural phenomenon that they've they've got to address and engage with. Um, Lots of Christians are clearly involved with, with sports in the day. However, what we find in the Church Fathers is a real opposition to sport, a real suspicion of what lies at the heart of sport. So you'll find someone like Clement of Alexandria, for instance, who describes the race course. He obviously recognizes that horse riding is fine, but... once once horse riding enters the race course, it's entering a seat of plagues, as he put it, or Tertullian talk of um, participants in sport as being the devil's guests. And all of this opposition is, I think, best um, captured in the soundbite of of Novation, uh, who said that idolatry is the mother of all games. Idolatry is the mother of all games, that what... um, what Silent saying is that games, sport are tied up with false worship. And this isn't simply the 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 voice of the idiosyncratic preacher, because you can always find preachers to to make any, to be opposed to just about anything in life as well as to celebrate anything in life. This isn't just the preacher though. This is the church fathers that then give shape to the church at council level. So in the early fourth century it's decreed at the Council of Arles that that anyone involved with gladiators or, or charioteers was to be excluded from from the church. Excommunication. That sport was somehow tied up with false worship. And what we find in the early church, it might not strike us as that amazing today, but at the time it's remarkably countercultural, is that the church separates its worship from sport. The church does not baptize sport in that way. It doesn't, apart from one or two exceptions later on in history where you get these oddities of of people trying to bring a a sport into the Easter liturgy or or something like that. But uh, the church doesn't on the whole. It instead says worship is worshipped and sport is a corrupted, idolatrous form of worship. And it works hard to separate the two. And that is is quite remarkable. And that's all built on on this... um, Suspicion, long held, deeply held, that sport is idolatrous. Idolatry is the mother of all games. That captures really the the, the church fathers' approach to sport, even though they can see benefits, if it's good for health, even though there's times when Christians will need to enter the bathhouses to, to clean and, 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 and will partake in sports in those situations. But all the time the church is saying, yes, yeah, be careful. Sport is dangerous because of its association with false worship.
0: So does this hostile attitude carry over into the
1: medieval church? Yeah, it, it does. It's, it's a, the pattern of the early church repeats through the history of the church. So in the medieval period, it's primarily the tournaments and the jousts, those great sporting spectacles of, of, of knights and chivalry and, and, and the tournaments. Um, the church, again, Banned it in the early um, 12th century, Pope Innocent at the Council of Clermont. Okay. It was an outright ban. And again, he, well, I was gonna say he wasn't alone, but the, the support of, of preachers and, and theologians was, was there to be found. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux refers to um, this is sort of the 12th century, refers to um, participants in the tournaments as sacrilegious thieves, or Jacques de Vitry, um, who, who was a bishop. Um, is they easily match the seven deadly sins onto all of those who participate in the tournaments now we might think well the tournaments are you know warlike terrible activities, but in their day, this was the great sport this is premier League football, this was the most popular form of sport to play, and um, the church was was vehemently opposed to it now one of the reasons that opposition is, I think, somewhat pragmatic. This is the time of the Crusades. Uh, the, um, the tournaments were seen as some sort of rival and, and the church would, would, would not accept that and was seeking to harness the, the knights uh, and their skills um, to the, the task of the Crusades. However, by the ban by the church from, from on high, um, the sport remained popular. And eventually, um, by the 14th century, you find the church doing a U-turn. Um, so that the, the tournaments no longer banned, but are sought to be controlled, in order to provide a, a place where crusaders could practice. So John the Twenty Second overturns the earlier prohibition and begins the church begins to use sport again. And that tends to be the pattern. If you look at the history of the church, is opposition amidst perpetual popularity. There's something unstoppably popular about sport, and um, the opposition that. In face of the popularity, from time to time, it becomes um, sort of instrumental use, begins yeah, a thematic approach, and to begin to use sport for the church's own ends. And that pattern that we find in the early church certainly repeats in the medieval church and beyond again. And this is the pattern that carries forward. I, I was going to
0: jump ahead. Uh, this pattern is then repeated uh, with the Puritans, correct?
1: Yeah, with the the Puritans in the sort of late 16th, early early 17th century, you'll find um, an opposition to sport, a suspicion often tied up with with the understanding of Sabbath and the way in which sport would often pollute the Sabbath in their eyes, um, all tied up with the sort of work ethic and the seriousness, sobriety of life, um, or a little bit of a capital, but but nonetheless, this sort of Puritan opposition. You can find... um, in, in, say, John Bunyan, a, a good example of, of someone who actually believed that he'd been saved from a sport. He was playing a, a game called um, Tipcat, which is essentially a forerunner to cricket, something of, of that sort of type of sport. And he heard Lord Jesus say to him, will you leave your sins behind and go to heaven? or have your sins and go to hell, and he was, Bunyan was, was very sure that actually sport was inherently sinful. And so you find amongst the Puritans, certainly in mean, Massachusetts Bay and, and places like that, this this banning of, of play and banning of sports, attempt to keep the Sabbath holy and to prevent gambling, to prevent, just to keep life sober and that work ethic. And that sort of Puritan posture then gets reversed in a way when you get the emergence of the muscular Christians, certainly over in in this um, part of the world, in in England, where they begin to see sport as a good. Sport becomes a a vehicle of holiness. The the sort of work righteousness of the Puritans is transferred into a work righteousness of sport. And sport becomes... um, almost a rival account of, of salvation that then gets drawn into the church. So organizations such as the YMCA, you know, at the end of the 19th century, so sort of around the 1870s, they then have their first gymnasium, and, and, and suddenly a Christian organization is seeking to, to use sport as part of its outreach, part of its evangelism. But those same patterns of popularity, opposition, and instrumental use the church seeking to harness sport to its own ends just run like a thread through church history mm-hmm.
0: Lincoln let's turn from your uh, discussion of the of the history of the church and sport and and look at your ideas about the theology of sport and uh, you begin that section of the book by by establishing your working definition of, of sport so so how do you draw the boundaries of what sport is well
1: sport is always bounded i mean the boundaries are there it's a set aside sphere it's quite distinct from all all the other things that we do which is one of the reasons why it can often appear to be a a waste of time We, we set it apart and it's an area of life which isn't for anything so all the other things we do you know whether it's Get up in the morning, have your breakfast to go to work, to send the emails, to get the paycheck, to base eating. The whole sort of nexus of, of events that we're caught up in are always serving something else. They're always for something. There's a seriousness to them. But with sport, we set it apart as, as a realm which, which produces nothing. When, when the final was in a game of football, there isn't a crop to harvest. There isn't a statue to put on a plinth or a, a painting masterpiece that you can hang on the wall. There's no car rolling off the assembly line. It's, it's been, to all intents purposes, a, a waste of time. It's, it's for nothing. It's deeply unnecessary, which is one of the regular critiques you hear from people who scoff at those of us who love sport and can't imagine. Why would someone want to ruin you know, a nice walk in the countryside with a game of golf or why would someone spend a Saturday, rainy Saturday afternoon, watching a game of football? These things are a waste of time. People can see that there's no point, so to speak, to sport. That that makes it very different. And we do set sport apart. We you know, playgrounds, playtimes, um, boundaries, pitches, tracks, uniforms, kits. There are ways in which a space, a pure space, as one philosopher calls it, is is created which is, to all intents and purposes, radically unnecessary. It's a space of freedom. But that freedom, the freedom of sport, isn't some nihilistic, capricious, random, chaotic nothingness. It, 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 it does have a point. All games, to, to state the obvious, have, have goals. Games have a point. You know, there's, there's always a reason to it. But that reason, for this unnecessary activity, is within the game itself. The game is a set aside unnecessary but internally internally meaningful activity, and that 's what distinguishes it from all, well not quite everything else that you do but most of the things we do it is it is for nothing an unnecessary but meaningful activity and can
0: I ask you how you came to that that realization because you opened the book with this and in, in terms of you describe going to uh, going to an arsenal match, going to the pub beforehand, going to the stadium. Uh, and then as you're on, on your way home, uh, you're thinking to yourself, there was no purpose to this. Is this something that you had as, as an epiphany after, after a match, or was it a gradual realization that you came to?
1: Well, a bit of both, a, a, a gradual realization. The background, we talked about this at the beginning when, when, when we were chatting, but. um, you know, coming in now, finding myself as an academic, as a theologian, and and recognising that I spent the vast majority of my life doing something that was good for nothing. You know, that it hadn't produced anything. I hadn't learned Greek or Hebrew or Latin or I hadn't been reading Kant or Aquinas like a lot of um, a lot of academics were doing as 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 you know children and and, and young adults. I'd been chasing after ball and, and up. what was the point of that? What is the point? And going to Arsenal, I suppose, is that it was an arena in which I suddenly felt freed from all the burdens and responsibilities that I carry each day as a a priest, as a theologian, as someone who's got a mountain of emails and a mountain of marking and this thing needs doing and that thing needs doing. And suddenly, at the game, I was in a different realm. This wasn't serious. This wasn't important, valuable, you know, pour your heart out of the team, all that stuff, but it wasn't, it had a different quality to it that, that distinguished it. Over time, the reflections from my own experience, reading around, I'm not inventing this aspect of it. This is, you know, the philosophy of sport is, is dominated by this insight that, that there's something non-productive about play. There's you know, something unnecessary. It is a realm of, of contingency and freedom. And all the pieces began to fall into place. But it's the way in which that insight of the sort of non-necessity, the meaningful non-necessity of sport, mapped onto Christian teaching that was the great sort of eureka
0: moment for me. So moving on from there, Lincoln, your your theological speculations about sport come out of uh, Christian teaching on creation. And, and this goes much deeper than, than Sunday school lessons that God created the earth and Adam and Eve and, and so on. So can you talk about the, this idea of the contingency of creation and, and this phrase you have in the book, the inescapable lightness
1: of being? Yes, a phrase actually um, goes from the work of, of Rowan Williams, that, that particular phrase. The central dogmatic point, though, is is quite simple, and it isn't beyond the the realms of Sunday school in many respects. The Church believes that there's one God, and that the Church believes that that we are not that God. God is God, and everything else isn't. And the Church believes that if we are not God, if God is God and, and we are not God, then God must have created us out of nothing. But in the beginning, there was only the one God. There wasn't anything else lying around with which God could, could knock us with. Um, he summoned us into existence out of nothing. And that belief that God creates us out of nothing establishes and identifies and celebrates the freedom of God. God wasn't forced. It wasn't, um, he didn't need to create. There was no... Sort of architectural blueprint that some other god had given him, that he was contracted and obligated to fulfill. It was a, a great event of, of divine freedom. He created us not out of need, not forced, but, but freely. And that freedom of God to create mustn't be misunderstood. That you know, this was—it's not that God lacked anything. It's not that God needed anything. God is, the Church believes God is complete and, and perfect in himself as the Father, Son, and Spirit. He doesn't long for company. He keeps his own company, so to speak. He is um, the triune God, the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so, therefore, when God does create, it's an event of immense generosity, um, freely given, an event of grace, of God summoning the creature into existence. So what that means, at the level of our creatureliness, the level of our being, our deepest, deepest identity, it means that we're not that serious, as John well Williams puts it, that we're not needed, we're not carrying the burden of eternity around us. There's something quite playful in us that we're not necessary. We're we're, we're an event of freedom. But again, just like when we were talking about um, sport earlier on, we mustn't misunderstand this freedom, this non-necessity, this unseriousness in some nihilistic, bleak, despairing vision of God just doing this capriciously and randomly and and by chance. We were created for a purpose, to share in the life of God. We were created for love. And therefore, at our deepest level, we are all unnecessary but meaningful. That's the nature of being a creature, that we're, we're unnecessary but we're meaningful. And that's precisely the point where the Christian doctrine of creation or Put it that way around. It's precisely the point where sport can be mapped onto the Christian doctrine of creation and recognised to be a place where we we are celebrating our deepest identity as non-serious, unnecessary but meaningful creatures, and the sport is is like a, a dramatic ritual, a, a liturgy of that fundamental identity.
0: So I'll ask: so so you insist then that the church should celebrate sport?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. The sport is a, is woven into our deepest identity as an expression of that and it's something that we can and should celebrate. However, um, life's not as simple as we all wish it would be and certainly the church doesn't understand it to be simple. Any account of creation, which is essentially what I'm giving in the book, needs to be qualified by a subsidiary account of, of the fall. And it's the notion of the fall and the way in which Um, every aspect of our life is corrupted, needs to be taken into account. So, for example, if you think of the, um, in in Genesis, the the story of the temptation, however you you read that, at the heart of it is this um, calling, you know, eat of this fruit and you will be as gods. And there's something about the, the fallen nature of the human creature that seeks to Um, supplant divinity, to take the place of God, and essentially to worship ourselves. If that's the case, then sport, if it is aligned to our deepest identity in a place where we should celebrate ourselves as creatures, it is precisely the arena where that fallenness, that desire to be as God, will play out. And that is why historically, as the church has been so wise to discern, it is caught up with idolatry that the creature seeks to worship nature, seeks to worship itself, seeks to worship that which is not God. And so sport, though we celebrate it, we don't do so naively. We recognize that this is a corrupted reality in which self-worship is more likely to be evidence than a true celebration of our contingency as creatures. So
0: continuing with that, you do criticize, though, uh, the church's stance on the past. So the church has, has criticized sport, but you take exception with the church, um, in its more positive view of sport, taking an instrumental approach to sport. Yeah, I think there's danger for that.
1: I think that if sport is for nothing, if sport is this radically unnecessary, but meaningful activity, then to harness it to some ulterior motive is a mistake. If we lay to one side the whole question of of the church for a moment and just just think and reflect on how we react when sport is aligned to a political agenda. If, for example, um, I'll take a a non-controversial example that we'll all agree with, it was wrong for the Nazis to seek to use the Olympics as an avenue to promote their own mistaken ideology. Similarly, it's a mistake to use sport to evidence that communism is better than capitalism by a a program of systematic doping. As soon as sport is harnessed to a political motive, we, we don't like it. Likewise, if sport is harnessed to a commercial motive, if we're only playing the game because it's the way in which we can show that Nike football boots are better than Adidas ones, then somehow we're corrupting the sport because the sport is for nothing. And as soon as we do make it for something other than the sport, as soon as we make it serve an ulterior motive, then we are becoming spoil sports. Once we question, once we seek to align sport to something outside of sport, then we're ruining the sport. So the church and my criticism is, is, is mooted because, of course, there's, there's very important reasons why we want to evangelize or offer chaplaincy or incorporate sport into the mission of the church. I just want to be clear that the church should be careful that we don't then become spoil sports by making sport too serious. And instead, we should just celebrate sport for what it is, as this radically free, contingent celebration of our created identity and not seek to make it serve however noble or, or um, positive an end that we give to it.
0: Let me go back to the politicization of sport, and you and you said, uh, how'd you put it? Uh, I'll cite an uncontroversial example: the Nazis' use of of sport for political ends. Uh, let me use a a recent example, one that wouldn't end wouldn't have ended up in your in your book. It just happened a few weeks ago, and uh, um, so so Russia, as we know, has just host, hosted the Winter Olympics, the Paralympics, and it was during the Paralympics that Russian troops occupied the Crimean Peninsula, part of neighboring Ukraine, which was then annexed to to Russia. So Ukrainian athletes at the Paralympics carried out various protests, but the president of the International Paralympic Committee said that they should, um, and this is a quote, they should leave global politics to the politicians. So with this view of, of marking sport as a radically autotelic sphere of human activity, does it prevent us from saying, no, you you can't host an international sporting event and then invade a
1: sovereign state at the same time? Of course we can still say that. And I certainly wouldn't want to leave international politics to the politicians. There's a place for all of us to play, not simply as, as people of air and and charity and support, but also um, you know, positive actions that we have to take to, to overturn injustices, wherever that may be happening in the world. I'm, I don't want to, to rule that out, I don't want to leave that to some aristocratic sect called the politicians. That's a, that's a project for the people. What, what I am saying is that, that there may be exceptions to prove the norm, but we need to be aware of what we're doing that once we bring these ulterior motives into sports then the danger is that we're corrupting it and spoiling it now within an event such as the olympics if a protest takes place often we will decide that the greater good outweighs the the harm done to the game it's just recognizing that that sport shouldn't be routinely used for ulterior motives although exceptions will prove the rule and certainly we shouldn't let's say, um, dedicate our lives to uh, a sporting activity with the sole intention not of just enjoying the sport, but of doing it in order to make at some ulterior point. So uh, from time to time, um, it obviously will be necessary and protest will be one of those areas which will invade the sporting arena and and, and life will crash into it and pollute its purity. But. Um, those times that we need to be be careful and not do it as a matter of routine or some sort of corporate strategy, whether that's political or commercial or ecclesial. Mm-hmm. Sport is sport is sport and um, when we do do these things we're we're corrupting it. And sometimes we do have to corrupt things and, and, and spoil them to make a point, but not routinely and not lightly.
0: I want, to, I want to stay with matters of politics and, and political conflict. And uh, it's it's often said that modern sports are, are something of a substitute for war. And you discuss this in your book. And, in fact, you cite George Orwell's phrase that, that sport is war minus the guns. Uh, but in your book, yeah. you, you turn this around in an interesting way. Can you talk about that?
1: It's a popular conception of sport, that it is somehow a civilized form of, of war that something most basic in us, perhaps a genetic um, evolutionary struggle in which we're all, you know, fighting to be the fittest or some um, warlike gene within us is somehow civilized and domesticated within the project of modern sports. I, I resist that, and in the book go to some lengths to, to make the case that we're, we're better off reimagining war as a fallen, corrupted form of sport rather than sport as a, a civilized form of war. Uh, if, and okay, it's an if, but the, I make the case, if sport is tied to our most basic identity as creatures, if it's woven into the reality of, of our identity prior to the fall, then it's, it has precedence over our warlike reality. War and, and conflict and fighting are, are to do with our fallenness, their functions of the fall, whereas I'm saying sport is a more deeper reality. And so we need to understand not sport as a civilised form of war, but war as a corrupted form of sport. And that, that's a case that I make. It's, it's a novel, it's original, it's somehow counterintuitive for many, and the weight of, of history is, is on the side of someone like Orwell. There's many more people who would see sport as a civilised form of war. Um, but I think if if my argument is right, and of course I stand by it, the, the the case is made that that's the wrong way round, and we're putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. Mm-hmm.
0: Lincoln, there I've had uh, uh, a couple philosophers on the podcast who've talked about the the ethical lessons or benefit that we gain from sport, and uh, so I'll turn that question to you as as a theologian. Can we gain larger moral lessons from sport? So you argue that we shouldn't instrumentalize sport, but can we gain some some moral lesson from sport?
1: i yeah I'd be wary of again setting sport to serve serve some sort of agenda in which it's an educative um reality where we're we're playing it in order to learn these things. That isn't to deny that there's all sorts of subsidiary secondary benefits to sports, and one of which would be you know um fellowship friendships the cultivation of teamwork the all, all sorts of positives and um, that we can draw from there. And I think we can also make ethical judgments about sports. If um, sport is tied up with our created reality, then some forms of sport will be further from our identity as creatures as as others. And therefore, we can adjudicate between good and bad sports. But whether we will learn to love our... Um, to love our enemies, or to forgive, or to be merciful, or to be um, generous and charitable on the sporting event, sporting field, I don't rule it out, but I wouldn't set sport to serve those purposes. they are wider lessons that would be much better off going to church and 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 reading our Bible and saying our prayers and, and loving our enemies and being generous to those in need. Um, so I, I don't think it's I don't think sport and ethics aligned too closely, certainly not in an instrumental sense.
0: And this is because you see sport as this this really radically separate sphere of activity.
1: Yeah, I think sport is radically set aside, completely unnecessary, serves no purpose out of itself, Mm -hmm. outside itself. There is a purpose to it, but it's internal. And if we begin to um, sort of scrape around trying to find something that will justify, something to rationalize sport, then we become sport sports. We make it too serious. Once we seek to make sport serve something, be it a, 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 a school of ethics or be it a, a corporate rationale or political rationale, we're in serious danger of becoming sport sports. Mm-hmm. And that though we will do that from time to time, though there's secondary benefits, health and fitness and you know, social standing, all sorts of benefits from playing sport, they're not the reason for it. Don't rationalize it, don't instrumentalize it, enjoy it for what it is, a set aside sphere in which we celebrate our contingency.
0: Well, Lincoln, we're almost out of time, and I want to uh, come back from systematic theology, back to back to practical theology and back to the the opening of the book when you describe going to an arsenal match in in your argument as as you've been formulating this argument how is how have your theological speculations shaped your your awareness of yourself as as an arsenal supporter and as a fan of sport
1: well it's helped me understand what happens when i'm at a game the helped me understand the the way in which together in that competitive moment as two teams struggle with each other and one wins and the other loses, although from time to time there's a draw, but um, as we struggle, that only together as winners and losers can we face the non-being from which we're summoned and the life to which we're called. And that that together, basically there's more to sport than winning. That that winning and losing is part of it. And and that sometimes allows the bitter pill of defeat to be um, more easily swallowed. It's also allowed me to begin to think through the nature of particularity. So when when we're created, we're not created in some bland uniformity in which everything is the same. We're, We're placed in a world that has differences. Now, the particularity of the creature is therefore something to be celebrated. And so I don't see my alignment to Arsenal at the expense of my alignment to some other clubs or some other sports as a problem that needs to be overcome in some um, submerging into some generous universality or something like that. It's good to be particular and I'm freed to be particular and therefore I can be at the depths of my being Arsenal rather than struggling to think that I should be everything else. Secularities and differences are good and so as an Arsenal fan, I'm happy with that. I'm just fortunate that God's given me that noble calling and that noble (laughs) station, and I feel a bit sorry for those others, particularly those unspeakable Spurs, (laughs) as we call them, those um, Spurs fans who obviously wouldn't be interested in the theology of sport but would have to struggle with what we would call technically a theodicy of sport, an account of evil and suffering because those poor people have to suffer a lot of of um of evil following such a such a team i'm free to be arsenal and and delight in that
0: (laughs) so do do you wear your red shirt underneath your underneath your cleric's collar then underneath my underneath my cassock in church no (laughs) i don't all right well lincoln uh, i'll ask you what you're working on now so your book is titled a brief theology of sport are you working are you giving sport the uh the bartian treatment are you doing an extended theology of sport or or working in other areas well, I'm going to
1: see how it goes. I've got a, a, a fair bit in me, um, more that I can say. What The work I've done, because it is somewhat trailblazing and, and I'm not having to piggyback on anyone else, it's, I'm, I'm establishing a, a, a sort of a new field of dogmatic study. I'm hoping that it generates some conversation that will then allow me to, to come back and to develop the argument in particular ways. The immediate project, I'm, I'm just about to... Um, I've got a period of sabbatical, I'm just about to... Um, begin work on an uh, introduction to systematic theology for undergraduates, for those new to the discipline. So that's the next task. Well, there's, um, a, there's a few, a few irons in the fire about with some articles about sport that I, I will be able to, to run off over the next, next year or so. So yeah, the, the project will continue. It's, it feels like I've put a marker down and, and the thesis certainly has legs and, um, one aspect of the book, I, I trace a whole number of further um, avenues of thought and exploration, and begin to sketch out uh, accounts of competition or, um, all, you know, gender in sport, all sorts of, of fields that I can certainly push the argument further. But at this stage, the, the book's out. I'm, I'm looking forward to um, some academic engagement, people maybe pressing the argument in a few places, and then I can begin to, to develop it from there. There will be more.
0: All right. Well, Lincoln, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Bruce, it's been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Lincoln Harvey about his book, A Brief Theology of Sport, published in 2014 by SCM Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, and history. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports, or friend us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.